Hey guys, just a quick note before we jump into this week's episode of InStride. InStride is brought to you by RideIQ. RideIQ is a mobile app with hundreds of on-demand listen-while-you-ride audio lessons taught by eventing, jumper, and dressage coaches. In other words, with RideIQ, you can take a lesson from an incredible coach during any ride you'd like. No hauling and no scheduling. Whether you're looking to add structure to your rides or try new exercises or build confidence, RideIQ can help. Membership is only $29.99 per month, and every membership automatically includes a two-week free trial. Try it for yourself today by downloading the RideIQ mobile app on iPhone or Android. On today's episode of InStride, Sinead talks to one of the most successful performance managers in the history of eventing, Yogi Breisner. Yogi led the British eventing team to four Olympic team medals and five European team titles. Yogi also competed for the Swedish eventing team from 1976 to 1987, winning a team gold medal at the 1983 European Championships. Today, Yogi and Sinead talk about the shift from rider to manager and navigating his role as a team coach. Yogi discusses his relationship with pressure and how to handle it in a team situation. Yogi talks about working with everyone's personalities and the importance of communication and team spirit. We hope you enjoy this episode. All right, everyone, I'm really excited today to be have the honor of having uh, Yogi Yu here with us. I so appreciate you taking the time. I know this is a busy time of year, getting geared up and ready for everything in the season. So welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my, my recon reading up. I know, I know a lot about you. I actually met you, you will not remember, probably 10 or 12 years ago, I was working for William Fox Pitt. And- I do remember indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, both of I forget. <laughs> well, I was just so amazed with how down to earth you were and how, how wonderful, like you taught me a lesson. I got to ride. You were there for a training session with William and I got to ride. And between William being kind of such a cool character and your energy being so easy and open and thoughtful, I just thought this is such an incredible uh, thing that is unique and in my experience, it has been unique in high performance, but obviously it's the winning thing in high performance because 10 years in a job and four titles and at Olympic games. And I mean, on and on and on has that type of like in, in your leadership skills is, have you always just been this laid back? Would you consider yourself laid back? Uh, it depends on who you speak to. A <laughs> lot of people might think that I'm not laid back. <laughs> I definitely would say that with age. I have calmed down and mellowed and, and so on. Again, there might be lots of people who would disagree with that. Uh, I certainly was more sort of maybe aggressive, more dynamic, if you like it, when I was younger. A lot of people would still say that I lack patience. I like to think that I've got a little bit more patient with age. So, uh, but uh, no, I mean, I have had, uh, when I was with the British team for all those years, I was very, very fortunate in having some of the best riders in the world that had good horses that was easy to let, select from put together a team that was a very strong team at the time. And so uh, it was more just being a privilege, being with them and working with them and, and communicating with them to 
hopefully knit together a team that could achieve as well as possible. So backing up to that, so obviously before before you were team manager and chef for GB, you had your own Olympic career and your own top 10 finishes at badminton and top five stars or four stars at the time. What 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 caused that shift? Because you were actually quite young, like to, to change over into that role. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I always had a very genuine interest in horses. Uh, eventing became my career at one stage. I was kind of hovering a little bit between being a jockey and be, <laughs> going into eventing. And I've always had interest in show jumping. I had a horse that was uh, a Swedish uh, the bred, thoroughbred horse that raced on the track in Sweden. I had been doing eventing with other horses before him, but he uh, moved to Ireland in 1975 because at that time Sweden was pretty low key when it came to equestrian sports and particularly eventing. And I thought that it was nice to try my wings and see what it was like abroad. I had been to England when I was a young person, when I was still at school and I liked the atmosphere with the horses in England and Ireland. And that horse, I was half thinking about racing him when I got him over to Ireland and then they had a postman strike and the paperwork couldn't get through. This is, you have to remember days before even fax machines. Never mind emails and those sort of things. And so I did, did take him to a horse trial and he won. So I thought that was a good omen. And I took him again and he won again. <laughs> and then he became probably a, a very, very good horse for me. He, he, he was the one that broke through and gave me the success in my early days uh, over here. I then moved over to England in 1978 and I obviously took the horse with me and uh, we did badminton and so on. And then I got other horses to ride and I was based at the training center in Oxfordshire called Waterstock House Training Center. That was won by a very renowned horseman called Lars Sedrome. Yeah. And there came a time uh, around 1988-87 when uh, I didn't have many top horses to ride. I had more young horses. Lars Sedrome wanted to spread his wings and went over to the States and did quite a lot of work in Canada and in the States. And I kind of together with him decided that it was time to step back from competing and take up coaching. Hmm. And then I uh, continued to coach at Waterstock up till seven, uh, 1991 when I went freelance and coached my own. I was actually involved with the Spanish team leading up to the Atlanta Olympics in 96. Wow. And it was after the 96 Olympics that the, the, the UK sport was set up and, and to support sport in England and they used lottery money to fund sports and they really started to have a drive and sports came in on the second wave back in 1998, 1999, the program was developed and they created this system of performance managers and I became the first performance manager for the eventing team starting in 99 and continued up till uh, after the, the Rio Olympics yeah. in 16. So it kind of just followed on really mm. from one to the other. I mean, even when I was riding actively, I still did like a lot of event riders do some coaching. And how was that transition? Because it, that you, I've, I've gone through it myself. I think there's a lot of people in the sport that you're kind of, you get so bullheaded about one thing. I am an event rider. I am going to the Olympics. This is what I'm doing and nothing else. Everything else is a failure. <laughs> How was 
How was that transition? Because when you just speak about it, it sounds like it was very organic and very easy. And it was that, was it hard to make that switch? No, I didn't find it hard at the time. I was in a position where I had already been doing coaching and I was quite involved with the running of the, of the yard at Waterstock. And, and in England, you would call me, you would probably call me head lad. I did the feeding and set the programs together and, and helped out. And as I said, I didn't have many top horses at the time and nothing that looked like it was going to be another badminton horse or, or an Olympic horse. And I'd been married for a number of years and we were thinking about starting up the family and it was financially in those days, competing wasn't really that uh, good. So mm-hmm. it kind of lent itself a lot of circumstances. And I've been one of these people who has never really looked behind. I've never said, oh, I wish I'd done that or I wish I'd done that. I, much more a person that looks into the future and says, where is the next opportunity? Where is the challenges in the future? So it came quite natural. And I had already taken my British Horse Society exams up to what they call instructor level. And I did my fellowship in 1991 in eventing, which is the highest level of qualifications for the British Horse Society. Mm-hmm. Wow. So. Let's go back to your childhood. So was your, was your family horsey? I mean, it sounds like there was some racing there or what was the... Yeah, no, it was it's sort of semi-horsey. My father was a farmer's son, but he was an engineer himself, worked in a shipyard building boats all his life, uh, but did have a genuine interest in horses and did ride a little bit from time to time as a hobby. My uncle was very, very active, bred horses, competed himself, and uh, so that was always kind of horses on the peripheral of my life. And it was something that I always wanted to do right from as early as I can remember. In those days in Sweden, you didn't have ponies as such. There were the odd one around, but not a lot of them. And my parents had decided for whatever reason that it was time to start when I was 10. I wasn't allowed to start before. I had sat on a horse before then, but to start riding seriously. Uh, I had to be 10 years of age. So on my 10th birthday, I had my first riding lesson, cracked on. That's wild. And then, and so, and were you right away into like pony club or was it competing? No, in Sweden, uh, most people, even today, but in those days, you kind of started in a riding school. So I started in a riding school. I had one riding lesson uh, a week on a Saturday afternoon. And we used school horses from that riding school. And after my first year, I got the opportunity to lease a horse that, which meant that I could then start competing because you don't really, you do some sort of internal competitions with the uh, riding school, but it meant that with leasing this horse, I could actually go out and start competing a bit more, if you like it, serious as it were. And then when I'd done that a couple of years, my parents decided that they could, the interest was such that they went out and bought me a young horse. Mm-hmm. And I, if certainly now as a coach, I wouldn't go around and take, have a young rider or inexperienced rider, buy them an unbroken four-year-old horse and then mm-hmm. let them learn together. As some people <laughs> like, like to think it's a bit like putting two six-year-old kids in school and teaching them to, to learn a foreign language together. <laughs> it kind of always worked. But I had plenty of help and plenty of support, both from my uncle and from the the coaches that were at the riding school or riding instructors, as they were called in those days, 
mm-hmm. and uh, broke this horse in, got him going, competed him in the event in show jumping and dressage. Oh, wow. He was probably not the bravest horse in the world, so he basically came up to novice level in eventing. He did jump up to one meter 25, one meter 30 classes show jumping, but again, he wouldn't be the most careful horse, but did the dressage and was actually placed second in the Swedish Junior Dressage Championship one year. Oh, wow. And I then realized that he was a little bit limited to what I wanted to get out of. So we sold him and I bought another horse, which was a thoroughbred horse that had had raced. Mm-hmm. That was quite a mad horse, if you like it. He could storm, he ran around, he was very, very eccentric. And I suppose he taught me an awful lot about dealing with horses that weren't quite straightforward. He unfortunately developed an injury, which meant that his career uh, stopped up before he probably had reached his complete uh, limit, as it were. Mm-hmm. I then brought uh, another horse on my parents, I should say, another horse that was more of a show jumper, even though I invented the horse. And then I uh, uh, went to the racetrack up near Stockholm and for very little money bought this horse that I then eventually took with me to England called Altimus that ended up being probably the best horse I did ever mm-hmm. ride. And back in, as I said, I'd been over to Waterstock as a pupil in 71, 72, and then 75, I finished my schooling. I had done, my parents insisted I'd go out and do my equivalent to A-levels here in England. Yeah. Then I could do what I like. I, in Sweden, you had to have, there was national service. I did my uh, army service. And then as soon as all that was done, through a friend of a friend, I got a job in Ireland for three yeah. months. And that was it. I did my three months, stayed on, brought the horse over, uh, uh, trained and competed in Ireland, and then got a scholarship from the Swedish Equestrian Federation to mm-hmm. go over to England to Burley in 1978. And I then based myself back at Lars Sederholm, who I knew and I'd had contact with. Mm-hmm. He your job. I stayed. I married his secretary and last and said, the rest is history. <laughs> The end, in a, in a nutshell. <laughs> I can see how it's just moving from the next thing to the next thing. And it just... Yes. And re- rolled on a little bit from that. I'm still very happily married. And my <laughs> uh, wife, when she she left Waterstock and we had children, she then, when I went freelancing, she worked as my secretary. And so we have had a working relationship all our lives. <laughs> and you still get on. <laughs> we still get to her. I think I get on with her. She might have a different. <laughs> we'll we'll have her on another podcast. <laughs> yes. So moving on to the second part of your career, your kind of the the high performance coaching part of your career. I mean, was that something that was? I mean, at that point, you had already been operating at a pretty high level of competition. And when you went into that, there was obviously a big change in the system, right? Because that's right when lottery funding came in and there was yeah. a big switch around because there hadn't been, in my mind, Great Britain has always been super, super successful, always been at the top of the podiums. But before you came on, there was a lag there in championships. Is that, am I right there? Yes, there was a period. I mean, they, they, uh, Britain has always had a very, very strong eventing team, mm-hmm. but there were a couple of 
Olympic Games like Barcelona and Atlanta where things didn't go quite to plan and a few championships when things didn't quite work, work out for whatever reason. I mean, it, no nation can stay on top forever and ever and ever after. But when the lottery start, started and I got into the role as a performance manager, it was pretty much a, a, a blank sheet of paper because right. it hadn't been done before. So it was a great time to be on board because you could formulate and steer certain areas of what we, you were doing and, and, and then how to set it up. And I was also, as I said before, very fortunate to have some excellent riders. I mean, Ian Stark was still riding. Mary King was still mm -hmm. going very strong and continued for quite a long time after that. But you had uh, naturally both Tina Cook and William Fox Pete were already established. But it was also the beginning of uh, Pippa Fan and Leslie Law, who is now based ever in Florida, and Janet Breakwell. And then a number of other riders that came through over the period of time. So, uh, Sarah Phillips, Nicola Wilson, Piggy French, it's and incredible. so on. There was, and I, I'm sure that I have done an injustice to some of them that then came through as well, like Oliver Town and uh, towards the back end of my uh, doing my job as a performance manager, riders like Laura Quiller, Tom McEwen, and Gemma uh, Tattersall were all starting to nibble away. And they are, of course, now uh, a wrestling cantor the next generation of riders that is coming through. And of course, Jasmine Ingham won the World Equestrian Games this time around. She was riding ponies uh, in those days. <laughs> so it's great fun to have seen some of these riders like Jasmine or uh, Laura Collett or uh, Kitty King and those ones who I first came in touch with when they were riding ponies. Mm. And now they are established senior riders on, on, on the championship circuit. I mean, it's it's so incredible when you list those names. It makes me think of, have you read Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell's book? Uh, yes, I have indeed, yes. But it sounds like that. It's like, what is in the water? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, I mean, what is it? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the, 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 the eventing has always been traditionally a very strong sport in Great Britain. Where we have strong culture of hunting and race riding, which, of course, has always been close to cross-country riding of the eventing mm -hmm. sphere. There were times when certainly they needed to learn more about the dressage side of things. Show jumping has always been strong in Britain, but after the Olympic Games 48, as we know in, in Britain, badminton starts in 1949 and a very good comp competition circuit mm -hmm. started in Britain, which gave riders the opportunity to produce horses to the highest level, uh, the structure was strong and the competition was strong. And of course, as you well know, you were based over here for a while. Other American riders have been over here. A lot of the New Zealand, Australian riders come over and base themselves here because all that good base of, of a structured competition program. The other thing is that Britain is not a very large country when it comes to area. So you can do a lot of eventing without having to travel 4,000 miles to do it. Yeah, 100%. And when you came in and you were kind of had your blank piece of paper and building this job, really this outline, this job criteria, what was there, was there a gray area or was it pretty clear as far as, cause often it's different between like a performance manager, a coach, a trainer, you have specific people come in. How did you navigate where to step in, where to help, where to teach a lesson, where to just give support, or was that fairly obvious? 
I was very fortunate when I, the very first year I started, Chris Barton was actually the team dressage coach. And we had a very good show jumping coach in a guy called Kenneth Clausen, who sadly died a number of years ago. And uh, so, and we had a very good vet at the time as well in Jenny Hall, who's now working for the FBI on the veterinary side. And uh, so there was a team already there. And I felt that it would be wrong when I started out to actually change that team. As we know, the year after Chris Barton went to work with the Germans uh, very successfully, and now he's back in the British camp again, very successfully. And I was fortunate enough to stumble on a, a lady called Tracy Robinson, yeah. who worked her way into becoming our dressage coach and was our dressage coach right up until including uh, the Rio games and, and still involved with working with a lot of the team riders and uh, around the team. And. So we had a nucleus or that uh, uh, sort of structure of coaching. And uh, when Kenneth Clawson got in, we brought a guy called Peter Murphy and his son, Robert Murphy, is now jumping to a very high level. And Peter had jumped himself on British teams, etc., who stepped into that role as a jumping coach. Naturally, with my background, I had a pretty good idea with, with coaching across the, the board, uh, probably uh, over a period of time, cross country became a little bit of my speciality within that coaching team, even though I did some of the jumping training and even a little bit of the dressage training as well. But I think it was important to keep that structure going. Mm -hmm. We did bring other coaches in from abroad to come in as guest coaches to keep all of us sharp, the right. coaches and the riders, etc., both on the dressage side and uh, the the show jumping side. And so that's a bit how we worked. So in principle, the riders, a lot of them had their own home, what we call home coaches. Some of those were actually team coaches as well. And then we had the team coaches. And then we had what I called guest coaches who would come in, do a three day cleaning or a training camp, etc. That would bring, bring a new angle to it. And that were all often specialized coaches, both in dressage and in show jumping. Gotcha. And so then mainly you, I mean, did you have winter training sessions, summer tra training sessions, or were you just kind of working around the season? Yeah. So we, there has always been in, in Britain, a very strong pony junior and young rider team structure. Well, sometimes that's a gap in eventing and not just in Britain, but in all countries is when someone comes out of uh, the, the young riders, they have written to three-star level. It's a big step uh, from 21 to making it fully into as a senior. Mm -hmm. So we very early on tied on uh, a sort of training for those ones that came out of young riders that hadn't made it to a fully-fledged senior program as yet. And mm -hmm. after the first year of what they call the world-class program, which was based, uh, they have changed names now, but in those days, which was called performance level, you had a potential level and a start level underneath that, which was also there to help to build the younger people and give them the skill set and the opportunities and the training leading on to the senior team. Each one of the oldest squad had our own various training days and our own various training programs. But around the senior team, as a principle, we usually had a few training sessions in mid to late February. So we were a few weeks away from when the season started. 
And then uh, we usually did a sort of selection round the team about eight, ten weeks before the championship. So if the championship was running in August, Mm. September time, we would have the nucleus of that team, which we took into training in June, end of the June time, sometimes beginning of July, depending on the how the program sat. And then in the old days, they used to then do squad training and go straight to the championship. But that meant that these professional riders had to be away sometimes as much as two weeks in connection with the championship. So I usually did it uh, uh, two weeks before the championship, and then they could travel back home again, ride our other horses, etc., and then get ready to come out to the championship. Sometimes we had to adapt that if we had to do quarantine, like we had to do before Hong Kong and uh, well, quarantine even for the, the, the Sydney Olympics. Mm-hmm. So we, you had to ad- adapt to it a little bit. And then myself and the team, Beth, and sometimes some of the team coaches would go around to the different riders that were on the programs towards the end of the season. So beginning of the uh, end of October, beginning of November, to a little bit talk to the riders and set together a plan for the winter, how long the horses should rest, where we should, uh, which areas we needed to concentrate on. And that was both for the horses and for the riders. Mm-hmm. And we would then do another yard visit around just after Christmas, New Year, to just see a little bit what was going on in the yard where we could assist. And then we had the various training ones. And then we did other yard visits as well when we needed to. And things changed a little bit over all those years. So we would tag things on or we would take things away from it a bit. And as you got to know the riders more and more and we worked in, it was the same riders really coming on to the staying on the squad for a number of years, it became much easier because we started to know each other really well. They knew they could pick up the telephone to me. I would travel and help quite a few of the riders with our riding anyway during the winter uh, months and in, in the spring. And then we would see them at the competitions and had a little bit of a room that we tried to put together the whole of the, the team support squad for the long format four stars and above. Hmm. So uh, if we had our British riders at the Samur or one of those for long format uh, four stars, we would send most of the support team to be there and yeah, support and get to know re- horses and riders and, and owners as well, because the owners was very much part of their setup to keep them on site and keep them encouraging to invest in horses. And, 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 and paid for the horses and so on. And it was, I felt important that they saw that there was a team structure and, and, uh, and a support behind the individual riders, even if it wasn't the championship. Yeah, absolutely. So, and in that sense, like the, the idea of like teamwork or team spirit seems like that culture was, was pretty important and was something that was. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I looked upon it as important. I looked yeah. upon it as important that people knew each other and knew where they were and create the sort of right atmosphere for performing. Yes, some riders really liked it. Others came back and maybe wanted to do some things a little bit differently. And we would discuss that. We would make changes and we would adapt because everyone is not the same and everyone mm-hmm. is not comfortable with the same. So even though you need to have a structure, you also need to accommodate for individual requirements within that structure. Yeah. 
How, I mean, would you consider that a, a, I'm sure it would be a, a real superpower strength of yours is to be able to not only read horses, but read people because in that type of performance, uh, daily life of high performance, it, it, you're managing a lot of different personalities or, or are you feeling it that as it gets to the top, the personalities get easier? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is your, it depends on, on individuals. Um, we kind of look upon equestrian sports as an individual sport, apart from when you go to a championship and you have to ride as a team. Actually, equestrian sports, in my view, is a team sport. And it starts with the rider's own team. The mm. rider needs a groom. They need, obviously, a horse who needs a groom. They need to have the owners to support that horse. They need to have their own veterinary support and their own farrier support them maybe a nutritionist and a physiotherapist and so on and so forth. So they have a team around themselves. And then of course, when they go to an international competition, even if it's not a team competition, there are still other British connections around that. And then you come into the championship environment where then you have this whole team with the four riders. And so sometimes it has been five and sometimes it has been three and each one of those, all those elements working together. And I find that. To get that whole thing to work, the most important thing is to actually communicate yeah. and to speak to people and to be open about what it is. If uh, someone gets annoyed with what I am doing, then probably I will get annoyed with something that they are doing. And they, I feel that if they should be able to come to me and say, look, we don't like this. We have to do a change. Likewise, I should be able to say to them the same thing. And we had a little bit of a slogan that within our team, we spoke to each other, not about each other. Mm -hmm. And with that, I meant that we didn't want people to go behind someone's back and say, well, did you see so-and-so do this? And did you see so-and-so do mm -hmm. that? Etc. But if it was something that they didn't like, they should go up to that person and say, look, what were you about doing that? Why mm -hmm. did you do that? And, and, and we sort it out. And yes, no, no system and no work is ever foolproof. And actually, uh, when you look around and if I look back on all the teams that I traveled with and all the things that we did, probably I would say I did more mistakes than I did things correctly. But in the end of the day, if you try your best and you work together and you communicate and you are prepared to be flexible, but still believe and, 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 and the stick to your beliefs, then, uh, to me, yes, it works most together and it works. Yeah. Yeah. So, and what would be your takeaway from in the moment with how this two part question, how you handle pressure, what your relationship is like with pressure and how in a team situation you're dealing with individuals on a team that might handle it differently. I mean, again, from my own point of view, I can only but thank the United States of America for me coping with pressure. And you probably shouldn't say this in, in a mod podcast like this to young, inspiring people that are growing up, but the United States of America produces a cigar called King Edward, uh, which you can buy in Walmart or you could buy in Walmart and as Walmart but bought up a, a, a supermarket chain in England called uh, Asta. They also, you could also buy King Edward cigars in Asta. 
And that was my pressure release, being able to tap away on <laughs> a cigar in a quiet corner. <laughs> I didn't actually give them up in 2010. So I did survive a medal, six championship, seven championship, including the 10 one, without actually having to puff away on my King Edward cigars. But it's, I think everyone needs to have a release mechanism, mm-hmm. whether that being going out jogging or reading a book or talking to someone or uh, so on. And uh, mine was a quiet call <laughs> with, with a cigar. And then it's also individual how people cope with pressure. I used to be terrified about championships. I used to be, uh, 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 if people thought I was calm, then underneath the surface, I certainly wasn't. There were a lot of emotions going on in my mind. I really, yeah, got quite worked up about the whole thing, quite strong about it, highly strong about it, etc. But obviously I couldn't show that too much to the mm. outside world. You had to appear to be, to be calm and collected and so on. I've always been, feel that I've been very organized and have systems in what I have been doing. And I think those systems help me to cope with my own nerves, if you like it, mm. and, and the structure around teeth. And when I went to a championship, I still. I had a little bit of a routine of how I would get through the day and what I would think about and a little bit of a checklist so I didn't miss anything and I, I got everything done because I hated it if I did a mistake myself, forgot something or, or whatever. Mm. And then, you know, again, but through the communication and getting to know the riders, you found out what makes them tick and what works well for them. And then it, we used to have a bit what I call the buddy system. That was with the grooms as well as with the riders, where we paired two people together and they became buddies for that championship. And that meant that they could a little bit keep an eye on each other. They could talk to each other. If there was a concern, it might not be easy for one person to come, but it would be much easier for that or their buddy to mm-hmm. come and say, look, it's not me, but however, I think we should look at this and we should work on that side of things. And sometimes that worked really well with the riders. Sometimes they didn't need to use it, but most of these riders that we were dealing with, they had been to big competitions or already they knew how they functioned as a competition rider. And yes, sometimes when you had someone doing their first Olympics or you had someone doing their first championship and being first time in the team. You had to work very much that they felt at home in that environment and how that environment worked. And I've always been a strong believer about you don't necessarily need a good environment. You just need a right environment. Mm-hmm. The right environment is where everyone feels comfortable that they can produce the best results. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that you all get on all the time because you don't, because that's yeah. not life. Yeah. How did you, how did you deal with conflict? Again, because with a lot of refunding and so on, we did get the opportunity to go away and have training days about those things and conflict. And I suppose I was very, very fortunate in that I didn't really have much conflict. There were one or two times when there were a few ripples on the water and you had to talk about it and discuss it. And to me, that's then the balance on, and 
how much talking you do, what you say. There might be something that you want to say, dying to say, <laughs> but something in the back of your mind says, no, this would be wrong to say at this stage. Mm -hmm. And you have to swallow and back down, count to 10, and also to give space because there are times when you have to allow person to be on their own, to leave them on their own, to steer in their own way and so on, and then pick it up again and then run with it afterwards. And again, I, as I said before, probably did many more mistakes than I did things right, but, and you don't really know at the end of the day, did, how, did you do it right? Or did you just avoid doing it wrong? And how right, how, how right was it? And so on and so forth. Because there is always that in the back of your mind. Could you have done it better? Hmm. But I would, as a rule at the major championship or when we had a training camp and so on, I, when I go to bed, before I would fall asleep, I would lie down in the dark room and I would think through the day. I would go back and say, how did I handle that? What did I do? I would go through every person in the team and think, how were they today? Did they smile? Were they more quiet than they normally are? Mm. Did they look apprehensive, etc., etc.? And then I would give myself a little bit of a plan for the following day. Who do I maybe speak to? Who do I need to take to the side and say, hang on a second here, you're getting a bit boisterous. You have been missing this, etc." What do I feel that I need to do to make the next day as good a day as, as, as possible. And then I would communicate with my, uh, the closest team, the coaches and the vets, because the, the dressage coach and the show jumping coach and the vet, the me, myself would be the very close unit of supporting mm -hmm. to the team. And then yes, you had farrier and you had physiotherapists and so on and so forth, but they might not be quite so close. That was more of a service rather than necessarily working on the mental side, even though like the human physiotherapy had a very important role who would, uh, uh, because when they get in down, they get massage and they, they very often speak about things that they might not do otherwise mm -hmm. because they've got time to speak, to, but time to reflect. So I think the, the human physiotherapy helped a lot in that area. And I was very, very fortunate through all those championships to have the most excellent, the best farrier you could ever think of. Mm. Very tragically, he died last year in, uh, uh, in cancer, but uh, uh, he was still a young man, but he was just an ace. Mm. Drop him anywhere in the world and he would find his way back. He never complained about anything, however bad a situation it was. If mm. something needed doing, it didn't matter if it was putting a shoe on a difficult horse two minutes before it was going to go in and do its dressage test or whether it was helping someone out or cleaning the drain with dead rats in yeah. them, etc, etc. He just did it without a word of complaint, without anyone. He was just an ace man to have around the team. To me, in many aspects, it's actually the foundation of the team because mm -hmm. he was so solid in anything that we did. In all those years, I never saw him angry. I never saw him upset. I never saw him sulky. I never saw him sad. He was absolutely the same person all the time. And that gave a tremendous amount of stability and also a sounding board for me because mm. I knew that I could use him and I could get a very balanced view from 
from him. And he had actually been, he had already, he started, I think his first championship was 91. And I started, my, my first championship was 2000. So he'd done 10 championships before he even came back. So he was very, very experienced guy. It's so incredible. It's funny that you say that because I am on a, a committee that does a lot of work around kind of hiring and firing. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and what's funny about it is that a lot of the topics and a lot of the people that, uh, that we're discussing, it's already a given that they're experts at what they do. But what the main point of conversation we have is how are they going to get along with others? How are they going to handle conflict? How are they going to handle pressure? And I think it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's, it's a perspective that until you're in that situation and until you're around someone like that, that actually, yes, obviously it, he's going to be the best farrier, one of the best farriers in the world, but his contribution is so much bigger and his reach is so much more. And he's so irreplaceable because of this skill set that he has in his people skills and his reading a room and that type of thing. And I think that when saying that your value in in those situations is so much more than just your skill set, just your technical skill set. Yeah, and I mean the the thing is with the question sport. I mean all sports are part of an entertainment industry mm -hmm. because we go in front of an audience and we entertain them. <clears throat> and question sport is also a social industry because we got the horse owners and we got those people who follow us and go around and do it very much for the social interaction and be part of that sort of team. So it's very important, not just for the team structure, but very much for the individual riders that they have these people's skills and they can look after the owners, etc. And it's part of the team management to then when you are at a major championship to, if you like it, help to get the rider to have the time and concentrate on his riding and preparation for the championship at the same time as the owners get value for their money, which the mm. of the horse, etc., and that they get entertained and looked after. And again, we were very lucky because we had have it here in Britain was called the horse Tribe support group and the lady called Rosemary Barlow, who always set up things around the owners from that point of view. And of course, uh, we like, like to have emotion nations. They have a sporting director, or like it was called here, a performance director, who is responsible for all of those teams. During mm -hmm. the period I did mine, we had, I had one for the first year, for the first two years, and then he left. And then I had one person for the last two years. And uh, uh, before I then left, and he actually left at the same time. That middle section, we had a gentleman called Will Connell, who then went over and did a similar road in the States uh, for a, a number of years. And that person just helped to hold the whole thing together because when you go to an Olympics, it's different to a European Championship is that you have got all the question teams, that's a dress and show jumping and eventing. And you have to have certain interaction between the two of them as well. And that person who sits on top of that does a very, very good, uh, uh, important job. and case of Will Corner did an excellent job of how the whole thing was set up. And that just helps with that stru structure around the team to make, give the right atmosphere so that people felt comfortable with going out and performing their best. Mm. Yeah. I mean, what is your, what are your thoughts around that? There are so many, uh, there's so many different draws 
or pulls, I don't know if it's a draw or a pull between owners and supporters. And you get exactly going to a championships or a big event is the pinnacle of why the owners and the supporters got involved in the first place. But it's also where that small bubble needs to, to the rider needs to be able to focus, able to do the job. What is the back and forth in that? And what would you, what advice would you give to people that are kind of up and coming on the management of, of the job getting done, but also the necessity of taking care of the people I around think you? very important as a rider to get to know their owners, mm. know what they want, why they are owning a horse, what they want to get out of the sport how they want to be communicated to, how often they want to be communicated to, etc., cetera, uh, so that they can do what the, the owner is looking for in that partnership of owning a horse. Mm. But likewise, a good owner, a good owner who understands the sport and wants to get these things out of the sport, they will also learn and understand the rider. They will know when it's time to take a step back. They will know when they can interact etc etc and it becomes a, a a good relationship and if it works out well then the owner can be a great help and support towards the rider's performance mm. and if it doesn't work it can can be disturbance and that's when sometimes the team management needs to come in to maybe do a little bit of arbitration but also steer the whole thing in in a way that it does perform and of course the rider wouldn't have the good horse if it wasn't for the owner. Mm -hmm. Likewise, the owner would not be at the Olympic Games if the rider wasn't good enough to produce the horse to that level. Yeah. So it is, it, get, it goes both ways is what I'm saying. Yeah. And one won't work with the other and the other won't work without the other one. So, so it is, it is an important, very important and, and, and close relationship. And I think Again, I was very, very, very fortunate with the British team that we had some excellent owners that really supported us tremendously. And when I started out, I very much felt that it's, um, you, you can't stop owners from selling horses if they suddenly are worth an awful lot of money the year before Olympic Games and they want to cash in on it. But if we could create around the British team, an environment and a journey, if you like, which money couldn't buy, mm -hmm. then they hopefully would look at it and say, mm, I can do without the money. It's not going to change my lifestyle, but I would really love to go to the Olympics or I would really love to go to the World Championship. And that way they would hold on to the horse. And again, it comes down to communication and you would... Uh, it, it would be very important to have that communication and also from the team manager's point of view to find out how the communication should operate. Does, should I communicate with the rider and the rider communicates with the owner or with the rider rather that I went straight to the owner? So that took away a bit from, from his responsibility and that varied from, from, from setup to setup. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Well, it's and each relationship we, has its value. Yeah, and we we like to take the owners out and have dinner with them. It's it. I try often to do a course walk with them so they can see the course. The riders don't necessarily need to walk course with the owners if they don't want to. And we had a very very 
at the amusing incident at one championship when before it all started, we had dinner together with all the owners and all the the, the other supporters that was around, family and friend, etc. And I usually thank everyone and have a little bit of a speech. And I said then that at this particular competition, I would like you on cross country day to leave the lorries alone and the stable area alone so that the grooms and the riders can concentrate on the competition and they don't get disturbed with people hanging around. But we have booked tables in the, the, the supporters tent and you can go in there, you can sit there, you can be together there, etc. So if you could please just leave them alone, on, particularly on cross country day. And two days later, on the, on the first day of the dressage, one of the owners comes up to me and says, Yogi, could you please tell the riders that when it comes closer to cross country day, if they could please leave us alone so we can concentrate on supporting us. And we get rather nervous on cross country day. The last thing we want is to have uh, the, the riders coming up and annoying us and be in our way. <laughs> So I thought to myself, well, that was a success. <laughs> they had definitely taken it in the spirit that it was And they had joined, understood it, and joined yeah. it, and could see the humor aside in the whole thing. <laughs> and that was the sort of thing which I, when I talk about the right atmosphere, to me, that is the right atmosphere. Yeah. Mm. Yes, I, I love that. I love it being the right atmosphere. It doesn't necessarily have to be a stereotypical good atmosphere, yeah. but... Uh, yeah, I did an interview with Piggy March uh, uh, last week or the week before, and that's what she kept talking about, her bubble. She just takes her bubble with her to the competitions, and it feels like yes. she's just doing the same thing, and it was a neat a neat visual. So I want to go over toward the racing, because now yeah. you've moved back over into some some racing the racing environment a bit. Is that correct? Or did you never leave it in the... I never kind of leave it. I did ride a little bit as an amateur jockey in Sweden when I was mm -hmm. in my teams uh, over jumps. Mm -hmm. And then I did a few point-to-point -point races, which is amateur races in Ireland, again, over, over the, the jumps. And I've always had a very, very close interest in racing. I've always liked the thoroughbred horse. Uh, quite a few horses that I had that I invented came from a racing background and, 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 and were thoroughbred horses. And when I was at Waterstock, and uh, there were a few trainers that would from time to time send horses to Waterstock for a bit of pre-training or improving their jumping, etc. And I then uh, uh, worked with those horses and uh, uh, rode them. And uh, that was great to have a closer interest. And when I then went freelance, I continued to work with some of those trainers and some of those the jockeys and horses. And the jockeys started to ask me advice about their jumping, and they started to have a few lessons about the jumping riding and their positioning on the horse, etc. And um, they're, they're at Newmarket, they had a British racing school. And in the early 90s, they started out doing licensing courses for the jockeys. They were, they were not compulsory in those early days. Mm -hmm. It was really if people wanted to go on them. And I was asked to start doing the jumping training on these licensing courses. And that developed so towards the end of the 90s. They became compulsory courses. And I actually spent 30 years doing those jockey courses there on the jumping sites, which all the jockeys had to go through before they actually got a license. 
Oh, wow. Uh, but uh, I continue to work and still to this day do go into uh, quite a few racing yards and work with improving the horses jumping, sometimes work with the jockeys. Uh, someone else, a younger person, has now taken over at the British Racing School working on the licensing courses. And as I'm getting older and want to start stepping into retirement a little bit, I have farmed out as much as I can of all my work, but uh, particularly on the racing side, first Chris Key, uh, who was an event rider, won Blenheim uh, uh, once. He was involved with me quite a lot over the years and is now actually working for a racer's trainer called uh, Dan Skelton, who is Nick Skelton's son, who of course uh -huh. won show jumping gold in Rio. And now Laura Collett is also taking it on that road quite a lot. And she's doing a lot of work with the racehorse uh, and going into trainers and helping them. But I still do a little bit of on the jumping side. And I also do a little bit on the flat racing side and uh, working with the riders in the yard to help them improve their riding and how they're handling the horses, and how they are acting on it. So it's interesting and I thoroughly enjoy doing it. What are some of the parallels? What are some of the similar things that you end up kind of teaching or seeing or in? I mean, in, in, in jump racing, of course, uh, horses have, there's from a jumping point of view in, in, in jump racing, there is only two things. And that is to get from one side of the fence as fast as you can, as safe as you can. The style and the technique doesn't really matter as long as you get over it quick and you, you, you are the, uh, it was standing upright on the other side, uh, but it's very much working on the horse's instinct, the horse's natural instinct of looking and observing something that is in that way, their instinct of how do they read that obstacle in front of them and how they would adjust their stride to make it on a stride, makes it easy for them to jump from, and then obviously to clear the fence. Because when you're traveling at 35 miles an hour towards the end of a race and the horses are on a maximum stride length and they are tired and you can't afford to slow down or shorten up, of course, then you will lose the race. It's very much the job you keep pushing on and it's very much the horse's instinct that is going to take over and, and, and make him go and do, do, do the job uh, right. So a lot of the basic work is around that. and was a, a racehorse trainer, he would have his schooling ground where he would have hurdles and steeplechase fences where they could go up and jump them. What I kind of brought into it, and not just me, but a lot of other people as well, was to use show jumps and jumping exercises and, and gymnastic jumping and grids that we would use uh, from the background of cross country and show jumping to help the horses to improve their jumping. Because mm -hmm. the advantage with that is that you can put the fences up and down. You can change the distances to accommodate for what you feel the horse is going to learn uh, or need to learn in order to be better when it comes to galloping fast over steeple chest fences. It's a bit like taking an athlete into the gym and doing specific technique training. That's so interesting. And, and I'm assuming you've done it for years and years, so it really did and has made a significant impact or or the trainers wouldn't keep having you back. Well, I suppose so in a way. I mean, I, the interest has always been there. And like with everything, you learn and you develop yourself and you it, things change, racing changes uh, and so on and so forth. 
and uh, I have had a privilege to work with some horses that has been very, very successful over the years and, and done extremely well. And that has raised the profile of what has been done. And of course, if people had horses that are not performing to what they feel is their best, a racehorse trainer would use outside people in order yeah. to improve that horse's performance, be that that they use the vet or treat the horse for something, or the horse might need a minor operation to breed better or whatever, uh, the farrier, they might need to change the shoeing or something. And that's where I come in with the jumping side. So it's just a service to help get the horses to improve enough to hopefully run to their best ability. And is that where you go in and you help the jockeys as well, just develop a little better feel so they can be the riders? Yes. Uh, uh, now in Great Britain, we actually have jockey coaches that are mm. qualified uh, 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 coaches. And when a young jockey takes out the license and he rides either as an apprentice or a conditional, he actually gets appointed through the British Horse Racing Authority, a jockey coach that he can work with. And the British Horse Racing Authority actually paid for a certain amount of the time that this jockey coach worked with the young uh, riders. But that's a scheme now, I think it's probably been up running about 10, 12 years or so. Before then, there wasn't really any jockey coaches as such. Uh, yes, other jockeys <laughs> would help and advise and help and advise a younger one. And when you had a stable, a stable jockey in a yard, that was a younger jockey, of course, they would advise. Some trainers who were ex-jockeys, etc., would have a very high knowledge of what the jockey needs to do, and they could help and ad ad advise them. But if you are riding for someone, owner or, or trainer, and you feel that you're going through a little bit of a bad spin, you don't necessarily want to go up and talk to them because then they think, uh -huh, this rider is not in good form. So we get another jockey to ride our horse on Saturday. And that's why I came in a little bit to help them working with our confidence and, and, and also with our technique and so on and so forth, both when it came to the jumping, but a little bit also uh, the positioning the horse to be more effective in what they were doing and a little bit on the race riding side as well. That's so interesting. And then on the flip side, is there anything that you've brought over to the eventing side as far as balance and speed that you kind of look at it through a different lens from working with the racehorse? I mean, de de definitely the ability to balance and to ride a horse uh, in in a, uh, a, a, a in a rhythm to a jump, which I mean, all jump tra trainers talk about rhythm, talk about balance and so on. And that's no difference if you're doing a show jump in cross country, if you are uh, going uh, the, at racing uh, speed, uh, but I jokingly say like this, that all event riders need to have a Grand Prix dressage horse to learn about dressage, a 1 meter 60 show jumper to learn about show jumping, they need a hunter to learn about cross country riding, and they need a racehorse point to pointer to lead, learn about riding over jumps at speed and getting yeah. fit and those sort of things. And if you can't afford to have that, you need a very good coach. <laughs> but in other words, that to me in riding, you learn more from the horses than you can do from any human being. Uh, and the practice of riding horses, riding a lot of different horses and getting the feel for different horses. But if you haven't got the right horses to learn from, 
there okay. is very helpful to have a coach there as well. And being a jockey can sometimes be a very lonely place because you ride a race and the first thing that will happen is that you will have a television commentator tell you what you did right and what you did wrong. Yeah. Then you will come in to see the owner and they will tell you what you did right and what you did wrong. Then the trainer will do exactly the same thing. And then the media will do it the day after in the press afterwards. And not only that, but your race might be shown 15 times over and over and over and over again. That's great when you are a good run, but when things are not going so well for you, it can get a little bit much. And that is why you might need to come someone from outside and go in and just say, look, it's actually not quite as bad as it's, <laughs> it yeah. is. And, and also help them a little bit with the riding and with the balance, with that sort of thing. And nowadays with the technology where you have all that sort of coaching does become easier and mentoring becomes easier because you can always look at the race and talk over the telephone. Mm -hmm. People can send you videos from training sessions from them when they're schooling, etc. So it, it, the whole job that has become easier, that doesn't beat actually seeing it live and being there working with the person yeah. face to face, but you can actually electronically do quite a lot these days. Is there a common theme that you see when, when you're kind of looking, if you're, if you're talking to somebody on the phone and you're watching the race or you're seeing something, is there a common theme that you see that where the mistakes would come from? Uh, yes. Uh, and I think it's very similar in all riding. When we got the pandemic running in Great Britain, we, uh, everyone talked about PPEs, personal protection equipment. And then I thought to myself, well, I have been talking about PPDs all my life. And PPD is the three things that the rider is responsible for when they are riding. The first P stands for position. In other words, how they sit on the horse, how they balance themselves on the horse so that they enable the horse to be in balance and they can be as effective as possible with our seat without disturbing the horse's natural uh, 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 balance. Mm -hmm. And I would say that a lot of the time mistakes have, can happen when the rider loses his position. And particularly when you're traveling at speed, when the rider thinks the horse is going to jump here and the rider in the enthusiasm goes too far forward. So they end up slightly ahead of the horse's movement and the horse then can't cope with that. So instead of taking off early, they have to skip a little striding because now they've lost their balance and they nearly feel as if they need to catch the rider up because the rider is ahead of them. And mm. they put that little stride in and the speed means that they can't quite get that stride in and then they clip the fence and, and a mistake happens. Yes, there are other things with a position that comes in as well, but I would say the faster you go, the more common that a slight mistake comes in. And uh, the next P stands for pace, mm -hmm. that the, the rider is responsible for putting the horse in the correct pace for what they are doing. That my pace is to me is a combination of speed or rhythm, the quality of the canter, the type of canter that you are using. For example, cross country, you use a different type of pace and a different gear when you go into a, 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 a fence that is a combination of ditch, uh, uh, rail, ditch, rail again, or into a sunken road or jumping into water, then you would do if you jump a straight forward 
fly fence. And the same thing in show jumping, different distances requires the different pace. You might adjust the stride length in order to cope with the distances, etc. In racing, the jockey needs to put the horse in the right pace for the race. If he goes too quick, too early, the horse won't last to the end. If he goes too slow, he might not get there to, to win the race. So that is the, the, the other responsibility. And the third one, the D, stands for direction. It's mm. the rider's responsibility to point the horse in the right direction. And if there is anything that should be put on my headstone when I'm six foot under, is that he arrests a straight guy because I, I got a pound for every time I used the word straight when I think <laughs> then I would be a very, very rich guy because to me, uh, keeping a horse on a straight line and riding the horse where the horse is straight and operating straight is one of the most important thing. It goes without saying that if you have to jump skinny fences and accuracy type fences like corners cross country, you need to be able to hold a line. But again, when you ride into a big show jump, if the horse is straight, he would push, push evenly off the ground and that would propel his body higher up in the air and more across the fence. We know in the dressage that if you can keep the horse straight, when you come up the center line, you get more marks if you're straight. If you are extending across the diagonal or extending down the long side and you keep the horse straight, you get more, uh, uh, better marks. And in racing, of course, if you don't jump straight or go straight, you're giving away ground because the quickest way between A and B is a straight line. So to me, that's there. And I, I would say that we all as coaches have something that is kind of our little favorite, which we mm. hang our hat on, if you like, and straightness will be probably be mine. Okay, yours. It should be PPS, not PPD. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you do have to steer sometimes as well, so you have to tighten the direction around as well. <laughs> we, can, we can have a parenthesis. <laughs> I want to get to these questions at the end, but I, I just want to hit on, on, on safety, on safety in the sport right now. Obviously, it's a continued process and it's getting better and better and better. And there's a, always conversation around safety of the horses, of the riders, some injuries we've had, of frangible pins, of the flag rules, of all of these nuances that are coming in trying to obviously make a sport that contains a lot of risk safer. What is your take on the broad uh, spectrum of that? The, the, the first thing is to say, I don't think anyone, and I know, I don't just think, I know there's no one around horses, riding horses, uh, or anywhere, spectators or anywhere, who wants to see neither a horse nor a rider being hurt. And um, so to me, that is the basis from it. Different sports in the world, depending on what you're doing, has different risk elements. And I've always believed that the human being, by its very nature, is kind of a risk taker to various degrees. We do, some people do it by driving cars very fast. Some people do it by climbing up walls. Some people do it by diving off swimming boards or uh, going on the, 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 the uh, football field or the rugby field or uh, work like that. And some do it by gambling or whatever. So we all have a little bit of this risk taking in ourselves. And riding horses by its own very nature in that you are now put somewhere between five and six foot off the ground, 
um, you are going to travel at speed on an animal that weighs in the region of 500 kilos plus. And when you jump fences up to show jumping one meter 60 and above, you're going to be high up in the air. And if you fall from that height at that speed, yes, there are always going to be a risk. So you will never be able to take away that risk. But the same as with us human beings, there is a risk about living. And horses, even if we didn't use them for competition and for sport, but we just had them to walk around the roads with them and have them out in the field, because being out in a herd is a horse's natural environment. And there are uh, horses that are going to be injured and hurt just going around in the field. Horses like to play. Sometimes they like to fight because they put the pecking order right. And in those processes, there are going to be injuries. So we can never stop that completely. There are always going to be that risk. But like with everything in life, it's in the human's nature to work on taking away that risk. So it's almost a little bit of a contradiction. We like taking risks, but we also consistently working to take away those risks. We now have safety belts in cars. Motor racing is a typical example of making a sport safer and safer and safer. And eventing has come a long, long way through what you were saying with equipment and through the, the, the jumps and the material that we are using now to make the sport safer. And of course, through the education of the riders, but because the better you ride, the more you minimize that risk. If we want to continue with the sport, I think we have to recognize that we are never going to get rid of that risk entirely. And the more we try to dumb down the risk element and make it easier and easier and easier, sometimes by doing that, you are actually enhancing the risk because when people feel that it's easy, they take more risk when they actually ride. Whilst if they have got a fence that enhances a lot of respect, they ride it with more care, etc. So I think there is very much a balance to be had in the sport between trying to make it easier and easier and perceivably safer, which I don't necessarily buy into, uh, but we still need to work on the construction and using modern technology to try to eliminate those types of falls and accidents which can lead to injury, which is when the horse falls over and when you have the rotational fall where the horse around the risk of running on the rider. I, it's work that can never stop, that we always go on and on and on and on. But I also do think when one do changes to a sport in order to make it safe, safer. You must not change the very essence of the sport, yeah. because if you do that, then people wouldn't be interested in either following it or doing it in the first place. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting thing that you, the two words, when you say safe and easier, but they don't necessarily need to be the same thing. Like something very hard can minimize risk, but it can still say hard enough to have the respect and to have. So that's the Absolutely. I think there's a real balance to be, to be had in that. Yeah. Perfect. All right. I think I sent you some questions. That's right. You, had a look at them. You, I had certainly looked at them. 
I can't quite remember them. Oh, I've, I've got them. I have to get the fire away with them. And it's not a plot quiz like that. <laughs> I did get you through them and I thought to myself, hmm, how on earth am I going to answer that? Because some of them, I kind of hadn't really never reflected on or thought about in my life before. So fire away. Now is the time. Now is the time, yes. <laughs> That's why we have you here. Okay. So the first question is, what is the biggest lesson a horse has taught you about yourself? I suppose if you sum it up in one expression, I would say humbleness. Because I think that horses, the way they are as individuals and individual creatures, the way they are prepared to do their best for you and be part of your life and part of a relationship between you, uh, humbles me. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that in itself hopefully helped make me a better human being. And they certainly taught me respect. They taught me to learn to. Uh, uh, think outside the box because you might think you cracked it and then suddenly it doesn't work anymore and you have to try something else and then you discover something that works in that way. And I think a lot of people that know we would uh, look upon me as quite impatient with a lot of things, but I would like to think that I'm quite patient with horses and I've certainly been uh, learned that I need to be patient with them. But I think that this respect and humbleness for the horse as an individual uh, is probably the thing that, if I think about it, that has really struck me the most because they are just magnificent creatures. I think, yes, dogs, human beings are working very closely together with, and dogs can be used in a lot of different ways. But if you look at the versatility of horses and what they do from us from, we can just look at them. And if you're good at painting and sculpturing, you can paint them and sculpture them, but they can be companions. They can be competition horses in a lot of different disciplines. They can pull a car, they can pull you standing on skis behind them and you can ride them. You can play polo off them. You can do, do all of these sort of things. And they are unbelievable versatile and humble themselves in what they are doing. And I think they are just wonderful creatures. Hmm. Was that, that's a a great word, the humbleness part of it. Was that an insight that came more when you started in a coaching and a watching role? Or was that when you were riding earlier in your career? Or has it just been evolution? I think that, I mean, we, we, we all start out doing things for various reasons. We might just stumble into something that might be parental or, or other pressures that makes you go into doing something, things specific in life, or you, something just takes your fancy and you kind of like that. I suppose to me that the opportunity was there because it was very nearly on the doorstep, mm-hmm. but it was also, I've always been fascinated by horses and always been yeah, interested in them as creatures and it never entered me that I wouldn't do anything but ride. But when you then started riding, you didn't think about this is going to be my career. This is going to be what I earn money out of. Gradually those sorts of things came in. And I think any young person when they are in something, you have your dreams 
and you have then your ambitions and then there might be a bit of a fight between your ambitions and your dreams and what you are wanting to set out to do and you live and you go, things go up and down. But I think to everyone there comes a time when you actually start reflecting and you start asking why uh, about what you are, are doing and then looking back to it. I hadn't really thought about it until you presented the, 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 the question to me, uh, if there was something, but you can't live a whole lifetime and earn a living out of it and still be active in, in it without um, having learned something from the horse. And there are lots of other things that you, you learn from them, how they react, etc. And I often say like this, that when you ride a horse and you work with a horse, it is your job to get the horse to do what you want him to do. They are not all capable of doing it. And then you have to put the bar where the horse is actually capable of doing it. But if the horse is awkward and you sometimes hear a rider say, oh, he doesn't want to do this and he doesn't want to do that. I can't turn him right or whatever it is. That to me is never ever the horse's fault because as a rider or a trainer of a horse, it's our job to find a way to get that horse to understand that he should turn right, for example. Mm -hmm. And I suppose over a period of time, particularly when I went into coaching, I started to look upon it in the same way. So if I was coaching someone or working with a rider, if that rider couldn't do what I asked them to do, though it was one of two reasons. One was that I either, the, 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 what I asked them, they weren't ready for or capable of doing, or I hadn't explained it clear enough for them to understand what, what they were going to do. But in other words, it was never the pupil's fault if it didn't work. To me, it is the coach's fault that it doesn't work because it is my job to find a way to get that rider to be able to do what we are setting out to do. If they come and ask for the impossible, then you have to try to explain that you are not, not just quite capable of that. You know, if I was an athlete and I said I wanted to win the 100 meter gold medal in the next Olympic Games, the coach would have to turn around and say, in your dreams, mate, because however much we train you and however good you are and however much you uh, apply yourself, that ain't never going to happen. That's the same thing with horses. You have to train the horse. To me, training horses is about getting them to utilize the natural ability to its maximum. Mm -hmm. We cannot make them do uh, beyond our natural ability. Mm -hmm. If they are performing below that, to me, one has to look at what one is doing with the horse, why it's not performing to that, to its best natural ability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's, a, that's a, a neat parallel that you made with the, with the rider and the coach and for us as riders and whether you're a young rider and adult amateur is to have that grace and understanding around your yourself as well and that expectation of where you're at. If you're working a nine to five job and you have one horse and you ride three times a week to be so hard, I run into this with some students that I teach are so hard on themselves and it's unrealistic because yeah. of the time, but it's figuring out something that is possible because everyone, I would like to think the horses, the people are trying to just do the best job that they can, they can do. Yeah. And I also think that in, 
all most things that you start in life and you get a passion for is because you actually enjoy doing it mm. and you get pleasure and fun out of it. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's very, very important not to forget that. Mm. You come to the Olympic Games, you are three hours away from the cross country. There is a lot of pressure and there has been a lot of speculations. You have got everyone looking at you, the owners, the nations, the, your own National Olympic Committee and all of those people are there wanting to see what you are going to be able to do. And in that situation, it's not so easy to think about that this is fun, this is enjoyable, <laughs> this is what they do for my pleasure. Completely the other way around when you are feeling sick and you're walking around yeah. in the circle, et cetera, et cetera. But even in that situation, it's not so wrong to take a little bit of a step outside your own body and look at your own body in that situation and say, this is what I dreamt of. Mm -hmm. This is why I got up at four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning. This is why I work 15 hours a day. This is why I put myself through all of this to actually be in the privileged position of riding for your country in an Olympic Games on a lovely horse that has got a good chance of going and putting up mm -hmm. a good start. And to me, it's so important that all the time to put things in perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to, to beat the guy that's got the technical skills and is having fun. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Do you have a favorite training or competition mantra that you reference regularly? Uh, I would say like this, yes. And uh, the answer is a plan and a system. Mm -hmm. Now that plan and the system would vary because depending on the halls, the circumstances where you are, uh, how you're setting it up, etc. And you a plan is only as good as its execution, but you also need to be prepared to be flexible because you might have made your plan and then suddenly the horse comes out a little bit more tired or a little bit fresher and you will have to prepare to uh, adjust your plan. But I'm a great believer in that you don't just go and fly by the seat of your pants, but you actually have a plan prepared yourself for what you're doing. You have a system in what you're doing, a system in through your warm-up, a system when you're walking your course, etc. and system how you set yourself up until you actually then go out and perform. And you can only achieve that planning and system <laughs> and preparation if you are prepared to, in an objective way, analyze your yeah. own performance. Because only then can you f see what it is you need to adjust to then go away and, and do, doing it again. Yes, naturally coaches and so on can help you with that. But most, particularly top riders, if they make a mistake, they know they have made a mistake. Mm. They don't want some old so-and-so to come up to them and say, oh, you missed that, didn't you? <laughs> that was quite obvious that you did. So to me, the conversation is more about what went well and mm -hmm. then what we can do better next time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know uh, if that answered your question. But yeah. It's a little bit uh, how I approach both the training and the competition, because yeah. it would be the same thing. Even when I go into coaching session, even if I don't, I go in to a new person that I have never known before. 
even before we start, I would have in the back of my mind, a little bit of a start to a plan, you know, and then naturally what they want to have out of the session and the level of the horse and the level of the rider would form that plan as you go along, mm -hmm. but you would still just have a little bit of a start to what you're wanting to do. Yeah. I think you were talking about that earlier as well, even dealing with the the personalities and the team and the in the culture is that there's a structure there's always a structure but you're working within and can be flexible within that structure but you yes. can't be a balloon in a hurricane yeah, absolutely <laughs> is there a piece of advice someone gave you along the way that you still reference today the answer is yes not just one but probably thousands <laughs> thousands of them i do think that there is um, uh, probably something that it wasn't necessarily advice while I was sat down and, 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 and given advice, but I think both my parents, but particularly my mother drilled into you that you should be honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of being objective and, 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 and being honest to yourself and not, not bullshit yourself as it were. <laughs> and also I think that, and you hear so many. Uh, 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 good things, but uh, one one thing it comes right to the to the coaching itself. There is a saying here in England that says practice makes perfect. And someone once said to me, "That's rubbish. Practice makes permanent. Mm. If you practice badly, you will be permanently bad. If you practice well, then you will be permanently good." <laughs> And that's another thing which has come in. And then the very, very renowned, good manager, coach for Manchester United Football Club, Sir Alex Ferguson, in his book, he mentions that any coach who doesn't recognize that training is all about repetition and repeating again and again and again and again, it's, it, it, you, they don't really know what training and co coaching is about. And I suppose that came into a similar thing, which really made me think when I did my army service in Sweden, when the, the, we had to, every time we stopped doing something, we had to take our guns apart and then put them back together again. And we did in the basic training, we probably did it about 50 times a day. Mm. And I once asked the, the, the captain there and said, well, we can all do it. Why are we doing it again and again and again and again and again? It's pretty boring. And he said like this, that if you're lying out in the middle of a field and you have got the enemy coming over the hill shooting at you and your mates are dying left, right and center around you and your gun jams, you don't have the presence or mm. thinking about how you should put it to bits and clear it so you can start shooting again. It needs to happen automatic without you thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something, a, a piece of advice that that took with me after that, that all training is obviously first you learn what you need to do and you learn the skill, but then you need to practice it so much that it starts happening automatic. Mm -hmm. So that when you come to a major competition and you might be nervous, there is pressures on, lot of things happening around you, etc. The technical skills are mm -hmm. so drained into you that they happen automatic. You don't need to think about them, particularly when you are dealing with horses and riding horses, because if the horse does something and you need to think about what you're going to do to contract that reaction in the horse, 
you will be too late. Yeah. It needs to come straight away. You need to feel what the horse is about to do, and you need to be able to react almost before mm -hmm. he's actually done it. Mm -hmm. And that is another piece of advice. I think one other piece of advice that's often rings in my head is you must not let pride stop progress. <laughs> in other words, you must not think so much about yourself and be so selfish or come up with so many excuses around the place that you don't progress. Mm -hmm. Pride doesn't belong in, in sport. It belongs somewhere else. But now you just concentrate on what you need to do and you get on with it. What do you think about ego in sport? Well, uh, there was a, a, a guy called Eddie Jordan who used to own a Formula One motor racing team. And he once, I heard in an interview, said, show me a driver who is not arrogant and I'll show you a slow driver. In other words, I do think that within top sport, there is a, a necessity to, for a certain amount of selfishness, arrogance, if you like it, which often people look upon as a bad, negative trait, but uh, good arrogance can actually be very attractive. Mm. And uh, a selfishness and, and a belief in an ego around it. And then naturally uh, when you become successful and you start winning things and you notice that people around you want to interview you they want to have you on television everything is going your way etc you start thinking that you are pretty good at this and your confidence grows which is absolutely right but that is where the word i used earlier about learning from the horse humbleness that well, that needs to come in because that's when you, to me, you need to. The more successful you are, the more humble you need to be, because mm. then, to me, the people who would not begrudge you your success, mm. whilst you become a diva and and uh, arrogant in the in a the yeah. wrong sort of way, etc. Then mm. people will start begrudging you your success, and then you don't get people with you. And we do need to have the people with us from sponsorship point of view, from ownership point of view, etc. Yeah, interesting. What do you do when you are seeking inspiration? Again, I think I've been very, very, <laughs> very lucky in life because I have inspiration to me has been all around me all the time. It hits you. It could be just seeing something well done. It could see some kids playing the playground. I think to myself, gosh, they are clever in how they are figuring things out and they are doing it. And here I am trying to get this horse to go sideways in a leg yielding and I'm struggling away. And these kids by themselves in the playground figure out things. Why do I have to be so <laughs> old and stubborn that I can't figure things out in the same sort of way? But naturally, reading something that is inspirational uh, reading uh, about uh, or watching people do something well or hearing someone say something uh, uh, good and so on and so forth. To me, that, that just inspires me. And seeing young people wanting to do things and doing things and people that maybe has had a bit of adversity, etc. I suppose in a way it goes to here, but it kind of also leads on to something that way back I ended up breaking my leg and I was in hospital 
for uh, the, had an operation and was lying in hospital. And I had a private room in hospital and I could hear a lady shouting and shrieking. And she was always shouting after the nurses. And I one day said to a nurse, I said, you are doing a real good job and working very hard. I feel sorry for you that this lady is shouting and shrieking at you. And she said, the reason is that she is paralyzed from the neck down. So she can't press any buttons or can't do anything. She had a car accident and this happened. Her husband has looked after her and, and adapted the home to, so that he could actually take her home and have her at home and got everything ready. And the day before he was going to pick her up and she was going to be able to move out of hospital to the home for all the hard work that her husband had done to set it up at home. He died of a heart attack. Mm. And when I heard that story, when I was lying in hospital, I said to myself, Yogi, never ever in your life complain about something because there is always someone that has got a much, much tougher life than you have. And that to me was a real, real, real lesson in life mm. of how you actually, yeah, you should be grateful for what you mm. have and what you, what you are, are, are doing. Mm. Times you have maybe writers that have come from a lesser well background than others, and they might sort of say that, oh gosh, I haven't got much. I started with nothing and I have to work really, really hard to do the sport, etc., 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 etc. If they're good enough to win Brown Badminton and Burley and championships, they had the richest gift in the world. They were given mm. a talent. Mm. They might not have financially money, but they have had richness from something else. Mm. It's very powerful. Yeah. The, how you experience it. Mm. Okay. Our last question. Have you had an experience or adversity separate from horses? It might just be the story you just told separate from horses in your life. You feel has directly influenced you as a horseman. Uh, you can, if you take the horse man and world out at the end of the sentence <laughs> that has influenced you the story i just told yeah. yes very much so when i read that question that probably was the one that uh, kind of came to mind and mm. um, if you then add the word horseman at the back i think that i would probably say generally speaking i have learned more from the horses about how to live my life mm. than I have been able maybe to put back into their life. But if, uh, in the end of the day, when you're working with horses and working with riders, you feel that they have enjoyed what has been done. Yes, they have learned to develop something, but they are content and happy with what they are doing and in their environment in what they are doing it, then you feel proud of that you have maybe been able to contribute something to those living creatures to make it better for them and 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 they are enjoying what they are doing and, and happier with them and so so yes uh, there would be that side of things that you you are yeah wanting to give back if you like it and, and, and on that chord, I, I was listening to an interview or something that you had done and, and, and you were, you were using something, uh, you were in a racing yard and you were talking about coming in and seeing the, the horsemanship and how people are working with the animals. How do you view or describe the horsemanship in racing and eventing? 
and and how from a you've had to, I'm sure do a lot of, of talks to the public and people that aren't around horses all the time and they kind of think why what are you doing why are you making these horses do this job but when you see it and you're a part of it there's partnership there and there's an element of it that they enjoy but how do you tackle that part of the conversation with with sport yeah I mean I think that uh, we, we, we most of us live in a free society and we have got uh, the, the, the freedom of having a view about what is being done and what we are we are doing. And I have always been brought up to saying that as long as you don't do any harm to anyone else, you should have the freedom to do what you are doing. If you start doing harm to others, whether that's other human beings or whether it's animals or uh, whatever, then to me, that's a different ball game. Now, some people might argue that riding horses in competition is actually doing harm to them. But from my angle, these horses have over thousands of years been specifically bred to interact with a human being and be part of the human being's life, starting way back when they were used as, as uh, uh, basically for people to ride from A to B. And then they were used to, uh, whatever you call it, uh, uh, pull carts and plow fields. And they, people used to in warfare and all sorts of things. They have specifically been bred into that relationship with a human being. They didn't uh, make the automobile, the car, to race it. They made it in order to be able to transport people from A to B in a more effective way. That's how we started out with the horses. But mm. then people started to get pleasure and enjoyment out of and also testing the cars that they built uh, by racing cars. And through the racing of cars, they developed better mechanics and better this and better that. And people started to measure the work that they did with our horses, the training that they did with our horses in order to prepare them for a life with humans, they started to compete horses against each other to compare that training. And by doing that, you are then enhancing how you are looking after the horse, how you are training the horse, because the better you can do that job, the better the horse is going to perform for you. And that then, like motor racing, has grown into a global sport where the horse is out there and, 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 and competing and doing that. Some people might argue, yeah, but the human has a choice and the horse hasn't got the choice. Well, having spent a lifetime with horses, if a horse does, definitely doesn't want to do it, they will not do it. And the other thing is that uh, a horseman and people dealing with horses will soon realize which level the horse can perform at. Because it's no good going to a competition with a horse that is not able to go at that level. Then the same as human beings, some days they're going to perform better than others because they are living creatures in that uh, sort of way. But the horse is, the modern horse is bred to interact and be part of that. So to me, that is just a relationship which I have a tremendous amount of respect for. And like in all walks of life, there are going to be times when someone does something that is wrong and they regret. It might be a human being to another human being. It might be a human being to a dog. It might be a dog 
getting hold of a child and biting it or whatever. And in some instances, it might be a human being to another horse. And I would not condone that at all. I think it is totally wrong, but we do not live in a perfect world. But the one thing I do know is that the majority of people that are involved with horses, they love the horses. They like to look after them the best they possibly can. And competition horses that perform, we know the better we look after them, the better they are going to perform. So it is in the interest of that to look after the horse's best interest. And we might think that we as human beings has a choice, but in the end of the day, there are a lot of things that we have to do in life that has no choice. We can't choose not choose not to go to school. We can't choose not to pay the taxes. <laughs> we have to split keep to the speed limits when we are on the roads, etc., etc. So there are a lot of things that restricts us in our rules and regulations uh, to us. And the thing is that if we stop using, now when we have motorcars and we have airplanes, etc., if and tractors, if we stop using the horses for leisure, sport, and pastime and enjoyment, then there is no existence for the horse more than to look at and serve as a, as a species. Mm -hmm. So actually, it's a, a two-way situation that if we look after them correctly within our sport, etc., hopefully our sport will be allowed to continue to work with the horses and that will enable that the species will continue to develop and be a, a proactive and have a, a, a useful existence together with human beings. And I think also in that area uh, about it is that when horses when, how they react. And to me, the one thing that good horsemen are capable of doing is to read the horse understand what the horse's needs are and therefore supply those needs to make the horse's life good. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, it's, they, they can talk to horse's language. They can understand it and they can do. But in all relationships, there has to be boundaries. And if someone steps out of those boundaries, there has to be a system of reprimand in order for that individual to understand the boundaries. That can be between parents and children, that can be between children on the playground, that can be within a, the commercial the, the company or activity. And in this case here, it's between a horse and, and, and a human being. And the same thing as you do something to the horse that he doesn't like, hmm. most horses will tell you. The same as if uh, if he does something to you that is beyond that boundary, then we have to reprimand him so that he understands where those boundaries is. And that's not just to make life easier for us. It's also to make life safer for him. Because as he is a domesticated animal, if we can't control him, if we can't lead him, pick his feet up, etc., then we can't give him the care that he needs, like pruning his feet, worming him, and all of those things that is part of good horsemanship and good health for the horse as a domesticated animal. Mm -hmm. been, I, I have been talking enough speech on you know, <laughs> a subject that is a very hot subject at the moment. And yeah. I think there are a lot of people that would be, uh, would disagree with the statements, etc., etc. Et but I, for the love of horses, I do feel that 
that, um, yes, I believe strongly in that there is a place for the horse in a relationship with the human race. I think that is an incredible perspective. And yeah, it sounds like you've been you've been putting a lot of thought into that because it sounds like a very thoughtful answer. Well, it's a very hot topic. And mm -hmm. I did actually, I have a couple of times had to lecture on uh, it uh, for bets and mm -hmm. so on, uh, why we should use horses in sport, etc. So I've had a little bit of preparation to think about it. <laughs> I think it's that that's fantastic. I'm glad that was just in the in the universe to talk about because I think we we all get asked that question at, at some point in time, but whether it be a family member or somebody that you meet at a restaurant, and um, it it makes light of it to just say, "Oh, I don't know. We're just we just do it. They just do it, and they wouldn't do it if if they didn't want to." So to have kind of that perspective is pretty priceless. It's a really excellent answer. Thank you for that. Very good. Well, I think I have hijacked your whole evening, but cool. this is so incredible. I, I think I, I'm so glad um, we got to cover such a range of, of, of topics and your perspective on all of this is, is incredible. And I can't wait to, to listen to this again. And what is, what's next? What's next for you? Well, I kind of come full circle because I started out with young horses, as I said, my first horse was an unbroken four-year-old, and I am still active. I have, uh, do work for the Swedish Equestrian Federation as an advisor to their a performance manager mm. in dressage, show jumping, and eventing. So I still have a touch of a connection with the very top end of the sport. I go to the championship. I, uh, went to Tokyo for the Olympics there with the Swedish team and mm. the, the different world championships last year. So that's great fun to have that in. I still do a little bit of coaching, even though I'm trying to cut down on that as much as possible. And I uh, still have a little bit of work within the racing industry, as we said. But I also slightly by default got involved with some young horses that I bought when they were yearlings and foals. So I, at the moment now I have got a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a three-year-old. And so I am actually riding a little bit, ah. but I'm not competing, uh, but I am uh, enjoying playing about with these young horses. And I keep them with some friends who also have got uh, some young horses. So we, I don't back them myself anymore. I'm far too old for that, but I do ride away a little bit when they are safe enough for me to ride on. And I do the sort of preparation work with long reining and lunching and loose jumping and all of those sort of things. And it's, it, it's unbelievably enjoyable to kind of having gone full circle and mm -hmm. now be back to uh, play about with these young horses. And we, they live out and we catch them, we take them in and we play about with them and then they can go back out again. And it's just really back to the grass. Yeah again yeah oh that's incredible that's like ian ian stark was over and he was riding in our young horse competition and then chatting with him last month and him saying he might just sneak out to an advanced competition and not let his wife or kids know yes <laughs> he said i will i'll either be in the hospital or i'll come home very happy yes absolutely well best of luck with all of that and will we see you over here at uh kentucky at all uh no no planets at the moment but who knows you never know if i Get, get to come over to the States some stage. Well, we'd love to. You should come to Florida in the winter. Like I said, the weather here. Uh, right uh, yes, I have been once and it was very, very small, very nice <laughs> indeed. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it in June or July, but uh, this time of year, it's quite nice. Absolutely. I bet it is.
Well, thanks so much. And so looking forward to following you and hopefully we'll see you. We'll see you out competing. Maybe, I'm, I'm not, maybe not, but uh, I'm sure we will. And to everyone that will be listening, I wish you all best of luck with your horses. And remember what I said, enjoy doing it and put a bit of thought in behind it. But love the horse for the wonderful creature he is. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Bye. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Before you go, I just want to let you know more about Ride IQ. At its core, Ride IQ gives everyone access to instruction from the best equestrian coaches in the world. It might sound impossible, but with Ride IQ, you get access to the private mobile app that has hundreds of on-demand, listen-while-you-ride audio lessons taught by top riders and coaches in eventing, hunter jumpers, and dressage. Here's how it works. You look through the app and choose a lesson based on your horse or a skill you're working on. There are lessons for green off-the-track thoroughbreds and nervous horses horses and horses that are behind the leg, as well as lessons that teach every stage of skills like shoulder in or trot lengthenings. Then you tack up and press play and you have a top coach like Doug Payne or Leslie Law or Gina Smith in your ear guiding you every step of the way. If you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family and leave a review on your podcast app. The best way to support the podcast is to become a Ride IQ member at ride-iq.com. And when you do, we hope you're excited to see that Instride is just one of multiple podcast shows on the app, including hack chats, conversations with coaches, and more. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you during the next episode.